Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 19 called The World Restored. In the last episode, we heard about Aurelian's defeat of Palmyra. That was really his greatest achievement since Palmyra had become a powerful state. And as you've heard, the two major battles he fought at Imai and Amisa were a close-run thing. But before he could claim the title Restorer of the World, he still had to subdue the breakaway Gallic Empire in the West. So let's join the story as Aurelian, triumphant in the East, turned his gaze towards the West. Aurelian's restoration of the empire wasn't finished with Palmyra's defeat in 272. The Gallic Empire had held out against Rome since 260 when Posthumus had declared independence during Gallienus's reign. Aurelian now turned his attention to reintegrating it into the empire. Compared to the defeat of Palmyra, this looked to be an easier task. For ever since Posthumus's assassination by his own soldiers in 269 at Mainz, for stopping them from sacking the city which they had captured from a rebel commander, the Gallic Empire's power had started to wane. Spain, which together with Britain had joined it, reverted to Roman rule in 270. Political instability followed Posthumus's death. His successor, Victorinus, was also assassinated by his own troops. Tetricus succeeded him in 272, but by the end of that year, with Aurelian victorious over Palmyra, it was clear that an independent Gallic Empire had little hope of survival. In the year 274, Aurelian advanced into Gaul, taking Lugdunum and moving towards Tetricus's base on the river Mosul. A battle was fought near to Chalons-sur-Marne in the Catalonian fields. The sources differ as to exactly what happened. Some say the battle was fierce, others that Tetricus simply negotiated his surrender. Whatever really took place, it was the end of the Gallic Empire. And with his characteristic clemency, Aurelian allowed Tetricus to retire to Italy, apparently even giving him a small governorship. While Aurelian's generosity to those he conquered usually ensured their future goodwill and cooperation, there now occurred a rare break with that tradition, for the city of Palmyra itself revolted against him in 273, massacring the small Roman garrison. Before he dealt with Tetricus, Aurelian had been forced to return there. This time his army easily reoccupied the city, possibly with the help of a faction within the city favourable to the Romans. But this time he could not stop his soldiers from sacking it. Although he tried to ensure restraint and prevented the great temple of Bel from being destroyed, most of the temples and public buildings were looted and many of the population killed. The great oasis city never recovered. The Arab sheikhs, who had used it as their base from which to operate caravan routes across the Syrian desert, moved their business elsewhere. 
A town to the north of Palmyra called Batnai replaced it as a new, although much less affluent, centre of commerce. The glory of Palmyra, whose star had shone so brightly and which had posed a real threat to Roman control of the east, was now finally extinguished forever. The City of Palms, as it was called, sank into a quiet oblivion, although the remains of its great buildings survive even to this day. Despite the recent destruction of some of them by the terrorist group ISIS in 2015, and they remind onlookers of its glorious past. In late 274, Aurelian celebrated his restoration of the empire with the greatest triumphal procession ever held in Roman history. Paraded through the streets were Goths, Alemanni, the Queen Zenobia and the Gallic Emperor Tetricus. He had achieved what most thought was impossible. He had reunited the Roman Empire from Hadrian's Wall in Britain to the deserts of Nubia, hailed as the restorer of the world. Henceforth, all coins minted bore his portrait with this title. This achievement must count as the greatest by any Roman emperor since Augustus. Certainly the war with Palmyra had been hard fought and victory on the battlefield had used all of his outstanding military skills. I'll now read a description of this triumph by Edward Gibbon from his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Quote, Since the foundation of Rome, no general had more nobly deserved a triumph than Aurelian, nor was a triumph ever celebrated with superior pride and magnificence. The pomp was opened by 20 elephants, four royal tigers, and above 200 of the most curious animals from every climate of the north, the east, and the south. They were followed by 1,600 gladiators devoted to the cruel amusement of the amphitheatre. The wealth of Asia, the arms and ensigns of so many conquered nations and the magnificent plate and wardrobe of the Syrian Queen Zenobia were disposed in exact symmetry or artful disorder. The ambassadors of the most remote parts of the earth of Ethiopia, Arabia, Persia, Bactria, India and China, all remarkable by their rich or singular costume, displayed the fame and power of the Roman emperor, who exposed likewise to the public view the presents that he had received, and particularly a great number of crowns of gold, the offerings of grateful cities. The victories of Aurelian were attested by the long train of captives who reluctantly attended his triumph. Goths, Vandals, Sarmatians, Alemanni, Franks, Gauls, Syrians and even Egyptians. Each people was distinguished by its peculiar inscription and the title of Amazons was bestowed on ten women of the Gothic nation who had been captured in battle. But every eye disregarding the crowd of captives was fixed on the rebel Emperor Tetricus and the Queen of the East, Zenobia, the former as well as his son whom he had created Augustus, was dressed in Gallic trousers, a saffron tunic and a robe of purple. Zenobia was confined by fetters of gold. A slave supported the gold chain which encircled her neck and she almost fainted under the intolerable weight of jewels. She preceded on foot the magnificent chariot in which she once hoped to enter the gates of Rome. It was followed by two other chariots, still more sumptuous, 
Demetrius, of Odenathus, and of the Persian monarch. Meanwhile, the triumphal chariot of Aurelian had formerly been used by a Gothic king and was drawn on this memorable occasion, either by four stags or by four elephants. The records cite both creatures. The most illustrious of the Senate, the people, and the army closed the solemn procession. Unfeigned joy, wonder, and gratitude swirled the acclamations of the crowd. But however, in the treatment of his unfortunate rivals, Aurelian might indulge a little pride, he behaved towards them with a generous clemency which was seldom exercised by any ancient conquerors. Princes who, without success, had defended their throne or freedom were frequently strangled in prison. Yet Zenobia and Tetricus, whom their defeat had convicted of the crime of treason, were permitted to spend their lives in affluence and honourable repose. The emperor presented Zenobia with an elegant villa at Tivoli, about 20 miles from the capital. Her daughters married into noble families, and her race was not yet extinct in the 5th century. Tetricus and his son were reinstated in their rank and fortunes. They built on the Celian Hill a magnificent palace, and as soon as it was finished, they invited Aurelian to supper. On his entrance, he was agreeably surprised with a picture which represented their own history. They were shown offering to Aurelian a civic crown and the sceptre of Gaul, and again receiving at his hands the ornaments of their senatorial dignity. So long and so various was the pomp of Aurelian's triumph that although it opened with the dawn of day, the slow majesty of the procession ascended not the capital before the ninth hour and it was already dark when the emperor returned to his palace. The festival was protracted by theatrical representations, the games of the circus, the hunting of wild beasts, combats of gladiators and naval engagements. Liberal donatives were distributed to the army and people and several institutions agreeable or beneficial to the city contributed to perpetuate the glory of Aurelian. A considerable portion of his oriental spoils was consecrated to the gods of Rome and the Temple of the Sun alone received above £15,000 of gold. This last was a magnificent structure built by the emperor on the side of the Quirinal Hill and dedicated soon after the triumph to that deity whom Aurelian adored as the parent of his life and fortunes. His mother had been a priestess in a chapel of the sun. A peculiar devotion to the god of light was a sentiment which the fortunate peasant imbibed in his childhood, and every step of his elevation, every victory of his reign, fortified his belief in the sun god. End quote. But perhaps the most remarkable thing is that in less than a year, Aurelian was dead, killed by his own men. This unbelievable event was apparently due to a misunderstanding. The most convincing story is that a member of his secretarial staff, a man named Eros, according to the Roman chronicler Zosimus, who had incurred Aurelian's wrath for some misdemeanour, which was perhaps fraud, tried to ward off his own impending punishment by forging documents with Aurelian's signature, condemning various high-ranking army officers to death. 
On seeing these, the army officers, led by a general named Mukapur, panicked. Expecting their imminent arrest, in September 275, they rushed to Aurelian's tent at Furium in Thrace, where the army was camped on its way east to fight a campaign against Persia. When a convenient opportunity presented itself, they entered his tent and they stabbed him to death. The Roman world was stunned and shocked by Aurelian's death. Even in a world used to regicide by the army, no one could believe what had happened to the most popular and successful Roman emperor for centuries. His murderers were seized with remorse and dread when they realised that they had been tricked and they tortured to death Eros, the bureaucrat who had misled them. The same would be inflicted on them in due course. After the tragedy of his assassination, the torment of civil war returned to the empire. After his death, two emperors, Tacitus and Florian, were appointed and murdered by the army within the same year. Aurelian's favourite general, Probus, managed to ensure a slightly longer period of stability, reigning from 276 to 282, until he too was murdered by his own men, apparently for ordering the army to do some unappetising jobs like land reclamation and swamp drainage. But it was clear that Aurelian's restoration of the empire had not solved the problem of the army's unbridled kingmaking. The army's unsanctioned rule continued when Probus's successor, Carus, died unexpectedly, again almost certainly killed by his own men, although his death was euphemistically described by one source as due to lightning striking him in his tent. This happened despite Carus's successful invasion into the heart of the Persian Empire, occupying Upper Mesopotamia and even capturing the Persian capital, Ctesiphon. His son, Numerian, succeeded him but barely lasted more than a year before he too was murdered in November 284. The imperial death toll at the army's hands was shocking. Since Claudius died of the plague in 270, his six successors, Aurelian, Tacitus, Florian, Probus, Carus, and Numerian were all killed by their own men. The Roman army had become synonymous with regicide. If this was not bad enough, barbarian invasions remained rife in the west. The Rhine and Danube borders were constantly being invaded by German barbarians. Probus spent his reign almost continually fighting Germanic invasions. The Persian Sasanians were also beginning to recover after a collapse in their power from 270 to 290 when internal strife and pressures on their eastern borders had reduced their appetite and ability for conflict with Rome. Despite Carus's successful campaign against them in 283, by the 290s they were readying themselves to take revenge for the humiliations of the last two decades. In short, by the 280s, despite Aurelian's remarkable restoration of the empire, it had failed to overcome the two challenges that had nearly destroyed it in the 250s and 260s, namely an army still contemptuous of the state it supposedly served, and frontiers that were still deeply insecure and liable to be overrun at any moment. Rome desperately needed another outstanding emperor like Aurelian to solve both of these problems. In the year 284, such a man was found. His name was Diocletian.
And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I wanted to let you know that the next episode will be in two weeks' time, since next week I'll be visiting Rome itself. One of the things I aim to see is the newly restored Mausoleum of Augustus, which was where he was buried, and is a large circular construction, a bit like Hadrian's tomb, which you may know as the Castel San Angelo. But unlike Castel San Angelo, which is a pretty well-known tourist destination, Augustus's mausoleum has been closed for decades. So I'll let you know what it's like, and we'll continue with the story of Diocletian, who was undoubtedly one of Rome's greatest emperors. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye.